Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 11. The text that Andrew just read is going to be the foundation for our, our message this morning. And uh, we're going to look uh, a little bit at chapter 10, but in the main it's going to be chapter 11. And uh, once you get that done, grab that sermon outline that you find in the attendance or the, uh, the announcement sheet. And you can use that as we go through the message this morning in our continued study of Matthew. And now that uh, we've kind of got that covered, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, to, to taste your mercy this morning and, and, and to sense your presence in, in the body of Christ and to know that we are redeemed. Father, there's a, a, an overfilling, an overflowing of our heart that, that uh, this morning we, we just exude thankfulness and gratitude and praise and worship for not only who You are, Father, but for what You have made of us. You have revealed Yourself to, to us, not only through Your Word, but through the Christ. And it's our prayer, Father, that as we, we study the book of Matthew in our, our classes and in, in our worship times, that You will give us eyes that see and ears that hear so that we can know Him more deeply and in so doing, Father not just be changed, but, but to be lifted up in our, our heart because of, of that, that imprint, that handprint, your imprint, Father, that is upon our heart and soul and mind and our body. Thank you so much for all of these things. And bless us as we study now. And we pray this in the name of Jesus and all of the church said. Matthew chapter 10 is... Um, a, a, a chapter on discipleship, really. If, you're, if there was one word to describe Matthew chapter 10, it would be about discipleship. The, uh, the, the disciples of Jesus are sent out. They're given instructions that are really to nurture trust and, and to really nurture the, the, the focusing of Jesus at the center of their life and as the resource for all things. And then on top of that, there is you know, the, 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 the instruction that there may be a time that as a disciple of Jesus you might be arrested, that you might be thrown in prison. But when that happens, don't worry. And you think, well, you know, as modern readers do, you know, we live in a country right now where we're free to worship. We don't have to worry about, you know, a Gestapo-type force breaking into our assemblies and dragging us off, which is the case in a lot of different places around the world. And that's sort of the way that it was in the, um, in the time of Jesus in the, in the land of Israel. There was, there was a, lot of, a lot of political forces that were struggling with each other. And when you get to Matthew chapter 11, what you find is John the Baptist has been arrested and John the Baptist is in jail because he has been the herald of the Messiah. He's been the one that has been preaching that you've got to make the path straight, that the Messiah is coming. You've got to get your heart right. You've got to get your life right so that you can accept Him and He can accept you when you finally meet. You know, human conventional wisdom says that one of the signs that your life is not going right and that your strategy is not right and your, your course is not right is when you end up in jail. And that's where John the Baptist is. He's in a prison called Machaerus, the sword, on the east side of the Dead Sea. He's been thrown in there because he, he spoke the truth about, a, about a, 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 a marital political situation and it got him tossed into jail. 
And he knows that he is the herald. He is the one that has been saying, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. And now he's in prison, and like most people, he's wondering, Was I doing the right thing? Was I pointing to the right person? And he gets his disciples together, and he says, You know what? I, I need you to go find Jesus, and I need you to ask him the question. I'm in prison. I didn't expect to be here. I'm the herald. I expected something different than this prison garb, this, this prison situation, this prison food, these prison chains. Go ask Jesus if He's the one who's coming. The one who's to come. Or she would look for another. And the disciples find Jesus and they go up to Him and they ask Him that question. They say, in the name of John, this is what we ask. And one of the intriguing things about Jesus' response in Matthew 11 is that He doesn't get angry. And he doesn't get offended at John for not getting it, for not really identifying him and sticking with that and, and tried and true. But basically he says, you know what? John's not really the only one who doesn't get it. And when he says at the end of verse 27, these words up here on the screen, he's basically saying the same thing that he did when he said, I'm the bridegroom. And that's why it's really inappropriate for everybody to fast and to mourn and to grieve when I'm here. He says in verse 27, you know, all things have been committed to me by my Father. What Jesus is going to do in chapter 11 is basically answer the question that John asked his disciples to ask of him at the beginning of Matthew chapter 11. Are you the one? And in verse 27, all, listen, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Basically, Jesus is saying that there is no way that anybody gets to God except through me. Now, if you think that's radical today, think about it in the time of Jesus. I mean, that is a tremendously radical thing to say to people who thought that because they were sons of Abraham, that they had this relationship, that they were part of this kingdom, that they were kind of grandfathered into it because grandfather Abraham was really special with God. It's just as radical today. I mean, you go down to, to Alamo Plaza and you stand up there and you, you say something like that. How many people are really going to take you seriously? In fact, most people are going to dismiss you right as you begin to speak. Now, that's one of the reasons, really, why people think that Christianity is so narrow. The only way to find God is through Jesus. But let, let's just flip the coin a little bit and let's take the scenario and tweak it a little bit. I mean, is it really narrow to say that if it's true? Suppose it's this scenario. You stand out there in the middle of Alamo Plaza. And as people are walking by and they're looking at the Alamo, you stand up and you say, I have discovered the cure for cancer. I know how it's done. Now maybe a lot of people would still ignore you, but the ones who have had to struggle with it and the ones who are under attack of the cancer, are not, you know, they're not going to dismiss you and they're also not going to attack what you say. They're not going to attack your assertion that I have the cure, uh, cure for cancer, but they are going to ask you some facts, and they're going to want to know what is at the foundation of that assertion. They're going to go, you know, let me see the research. Let me see what you've got. And if you present it and the research is wrong, then you say, nope, I guess you really don't have the cure for cancer. But if the research is right, then you have to deal with that person and that assertion differently. Now, Jesus does not say that all things have been committed to him 
committed to him by his father in a, in a vacuum. He does not act. He does not teach. He does not say all of these things in a vacuum. He is, but he is saying, he is saying that he is the only one who can reveal God to others. And he's been showing it through, through the miracles. He's been showing it by the way that he's been doing the healing. And that's part of what he says to John. He says, you know, this is what you tell John. This is what you tell John. The lame walk, the blind see, the demon-possessed are finding freedom, and good news is preached to the poor. And that's what you tell him. And then you say to him, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now what Jesus begins to do through the rest of that chapter is to talk about what it means for him to be God. And to understand this claim that all things by his Father have been committed to him, there are, there are three, three things to see in this text. The first one is, number one, there is a claim. When Jesus is saying that all things have been handed over to him in verse 27, he is saying that he is equal with God. It is my Father. Sort of the same message that we saw last week, as I mentioned a minute ago, when Jesus said that he was the bridegroom. And all of this is pretty astounding. It's, it's, it's quite a, a radical claim. And during this period of time, there were others that claimed to, to, to be God, but never like this. Never like this. Jesus is claiming to be equal with the Lord, Yahweh of heaven and earth. Now, those of us who, and of you who have, who, have, uh, who have studied Eastern religions know that you know, there's kind of a pantheistic bend to the Eastern religions. God is in everything. That's not what Jesus is saying. And other religions like that of the Greeks with their pantheon of gods believe that the gods were somehow bound up in heaven and on earth. And again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 11. And even in our own present age where we have the modern New Age religions where uh, you know, there's this essence of God that's inside of each of us. And the reason that you don't recognize that I'm, not a, that, that I'm a God is because you don't recognize that you're a God. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has the biblical view of God who is infinite. He has the biblical view of God who is not just infinite, but He is personal. The biblical view of God that He is transcendent because He has created everything. And Jesus is deliberately saying to these and anybody else who would listen, are you the one or we, should we look for another? He's saying he deliberately that he is equal with that kind of God. And then as such, he says, and here's what you do. You come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and what, church? And I'll give you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find what? Say it again. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's God, and He is making an invitation. He's offering an invitation. There is an invitation. Now, now what, is it that, you know, what is that invitation? Well, it's to come unto me. That's the invitation. 
And for us to understand what it is that he's inviting us to, we have to understand what it is that Jesus says we already have. The first thing that he says we already have is this. We are restless and we are burdened. You feel that way? Every once in a while you feel a little restless, a little burdened. You feel that restlessness not because, you know, you, you, you had too much caffeine during the day or because you didn't get enough. You, that, that restlessness is because some, something just doesn't feel right. Have you ever felt burdened? Debt, family, relationships, the job, the house. Now both of these refer to, I think, something very, very specific. When he speaks of this restlessness, it's a spiritual restlessness. It's sort of a spiritual sleeplessness. And when you talk to the sleep experts, one of the things that they will tell you is that, you know, regardless of how long you might lay in bed, unless you get that REM, that, that rapid eye movement type of sleep, the deep sleep, to get the rest you need, then you're not going to get very rested. What you need is the deep sleep. And you know how you feel when you don't have it, right? You know how you feel when you don't get that REM sleep? You kind of go through the day in a haze. You kind of go through the day in, in some kind of a fog. And Jesus is saying to these people that there is this spiritual sleeplessness, this restlessness that's more, that, that's much more than just a spiritual yearning. There's, there's something more specific to, to just having this God-shaped hole in our heart. What he says is it's, it's this burden. Over in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is going to jump all over these scribes and Pharisees. And he's going to say to them in verse 4, you know what, these, these scribes and these Pharisees, they tie up heavy loads burdens and they put them on men's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them and then if you you, you move from matthew chapter 23 over to acts chapter 15 what you have is a jerusalem conference and and paul and barnabas have been talking a little bit about what it what has happened in their ministry by the hand of god as the gentiles have been brought into the church but it's created a little bit of a misunderstanding some chaos in these church fellowships what are we supposed to do with a group of people that, that know everything there is to know about the Ten Commandments and the law of God, meeting with those that haven't a clue, they've never been exposed to it, but they both believe in Christ. And so there's this big debate, this council, this conference that meets, and, and finally Peter says in Acts chapter 15, he says, now then, why do you try to, to test God? By putting on the necks of the disciples a what? A yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Now back in Matthew chapter 11, I think Jesus has the same thing in mind. There is this deep and profound spiritual restfulness that they do not have, that they do not experience. They, that is, Jesus' audience are restless and burdened because they're under the weight of the law, that is, trying to prove themselves and to make themselves right and to try to prove to God that they're worthy of whatever blessing He's going to bestow on them. And so they're working and 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 only to fall short. You know, we did Leviticus, a study of Leviticus a couple of years ago, right? Remember, one of the main things that the book of Leviticus tells us, among many special great things, but one of the most profound things that Leviticus tells us is that you're ugly. That regardless of how hard you might try, you might try to live these, this, this, this law within an nth of perfection. 
only to get to the place where God is and to be denied access into His presence. It was a burden. And you know how it is when you try to live that way because actually we try to live that way ourselves. You always wonder, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I done enough to merit God's favor? Have I done enough to make Him smile upon me? Have I done enough just to get my my toe into the door of, of heaven when the time comes? We know that we should be honest. We know that we should be fair and responsible and never hurt anyone, but we don't measure up. And even if we take it out of the realm of of religion, there may be some here today that are trying to discover what Christianity is all about. And they're here maybe because they've been struggling with the same sort of thing, but it's not just been religiously. It's it's been secular. It's been in in the work world. Why are some people workaholics? It's because they're trying to prove themselves. And why are some people perfectionists? It's in order to prove themselves. And have you ever wondered why some people just seem to be so critical that they're always having uh, a a, a negative conversation, that there's always some some dark spin that they can put on whatever it is? It's, it's, It's to do what? It's to prove themselves, to make themselves look better. It's to prove themselves. And we know that we should be better. And, and we know that we're not living up to what it is that we should be living up to, whatever that standard is. And we find ourselves searching for ways to prove ourselves, and it's making us weary. We're restless because of that burden. And we feel guilty, and we have anxiety. I, all of us. All of us. And then there's this, this second thing that Jesus says we have. We're yoked. We can't escape from it. He says in verse uh, 29 of chapter 11, Take my yoke upon you. Now, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you know, when he said, uh, uh, you know, to take my, that my yoke upon you, I was thinking of the yellow part of an egg. And I didn't quite get it. And then, you know, later on you kind of figure out what, what it is. But, you know, what is a yoke? Well, a yoke is this big wooden beam that has two rings in it. And during the time of Jesus and even on you know, some of the, you know, the Amish uh, uh, farms and, and some of the more primitive farms here in the United States, and, and you actually see this in, in Africa, in some of the tribal areas, you see this kind of a yoke. You put the oxen or the other beast of burden inside of that yoke and they're able to, to do some heavy work. They do some, some heavy hauling, some heavy pulling. And what Jesus is saying is that you're yoked to the very thing that is a burden to you. And, and, and makes you sleepless at night. And as you go through some of your days fe- feeling like you're a little bit in a fog and feeling like you're not quite right, that there's something not quite right, that it's not supposed to be this way. And what Jesus is saying is something very profound and at the same time very, very frightening. He's saying this is the very thing that you're not going to be able to escape until you understand that there's this offer. And that offer is to leave that thing that you're yoked to and to come unto me. There is this offer. In verse 29, he says, Take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. And I'm humble in heart. And when you come to Him and you're yoked to Him, you find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
you know, back in the Old Testament, this, this, this saying of Jesus in Matthew 11 actually goes back to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 6, he says, This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, We will not walk in it. Back in Jeremiah's day, he's saying, You know, there are a couple of things you need to do. Understand this. Do this and you'll find some rest. A couple of centuries later, Jesus, who is equal with God, comes and says, do this and you'll find some rest. And the thing that you specifically do is to accept the invitation to leave that yoke and that restlessness and that burden and to come unto Him and be yoked to Him. That's the specific thing. And when you think about the theme of Matthew, the underlying theme of Matthew, not only uh, telling us who Jesus is according to Scripture, that He is the Son of God, but that we're not called just to accept that, but to be His disciples. All of this yoking together makes sense, doesn't it? That what He's asking us to do, what, he's, what, he's, what, what He died to make happen in our life is for us to become His disciple. That is to be yoked to Him. You know, one of the reasons we spend so much time on the Incarnation at the beginning of this series is that we have to understand who it is that is speaking in order to make sense of this offer. The first thing that is offered is Jesus who is the Son of God. The second thing that is offered is to be yoked to Him. He says, take my yoke upon you. And you know, there was somebody that was, that was completely enslaved to that comparing himself to everybody else in order to, to lift himself up above everybody else. And you know what his name was? Old Testament, I mean a, a, a New Testament hero? Paul, right? Here's Paul who is Hebrew of Hebrews, zealous beyond anybody his age, you know, of, of, of this tribe and of this teacher and of this kind of learning and, and, a, and, a, and a Pharisee and all of, these, all of these kinds of things. And he's trying to prove himself and prove himself and prove himself. And he's proving himself, that mindset of proving himself and comparing himself and others to others in order to lift himself up takes him to the point in his, in his way of thinking and his way of understanding how God works to the place where he's actually killing Christians. And then over in Acts chapter 22, you know, after he's been a, a Christian for a long time, the road to Damascus is long in his past and he's praising God every day that, that God was patient and tolerant and merciful and allowed him, the chief of sinners, to become a believer, to become a disciple. And not only that, to suffer for the kingdom, to suffer for the church. And in telling about his conversion, what is it that, 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 that Jesus says to him? Why are you kicking against the goats. You know, it's another, another piece of the symbolism of, of yoking oxen, of, of, of being yoked to Christ. And what Paul began to understand in that moment, on that road to Damascus, blind, for the, you know, not able to see, but being able to see spiritually for the first time, is that God was asking him to get rid of that yoke that was a burden that he knew deep in his heart was, 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 was killing him and crushing him because he was trying to prove himself the sinner that he was, the, 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 the maniac in so many ways that he was at that time destroying the church and the, and the, the rabid intensity of his, of his hatred of the Christians, that God would, would allow him to leave all of that in order to find peace and rest being yoked to Christ.
And Paul says a very interesting thing about that in, uh, in the Corinthian correspondence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's writing to a church he loves. And it's a church that's comparing themselves to everybody as well. You know, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I am of Christ. You know, you know how we do that. We, you know, we try to lift ourselves up because we're yoking ourselves to some famous individual, some famous preacher, some, some famous personality in the church. Well, I am, you know, the school of, of, of whoever it might be. And Paul just says, what, what in the world? And then he says, in verse 30, it is because of Him that is God. It's because of God that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the, say it, church, the Lord. Say that again. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's say it again. Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Here's my question. Why are you weary? One side of that's pretty easy. We're human. We experience fallenness every day. We're worried about certain things. We don't know what the future is going to hold. But from a different angle, why are you weary? You know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Jesus out there in that boat. There He was with those disciples, and He's sleeping in the middle of that storm, that, 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 uh, that mega seismos, that great shaking of the water. And, and, and literally, in Matthew, that water is coming up in waves so high that it's actually covering that boat. And the disciples in Mark's Gospels, in Mark chapter 4, they want to know, hey, why are you sleeping? Aren't you afraid that we're all going to perish? And Jesus says to the water, be quiet and, and, and stay quiet. And then He looks at him and says, why are you sleepless when you're with Me? Why are you weary with worry and anxiety when you are with the Creator? That's why He has to tell them who He is first before he can offer something legitimate. Don't you know who I am? And that's the question they're asking. Who is this? So I ask from this angle, if you're a believer and a disciple of Jesus, why are you weary? Why are you weary? And then from the angle or the standpoint of someone who's not quite given themselves wholly, completely to being yoked with Christ, why are you weary? Why do you insist on carrying the burden that you were never meant to carry and the bottom line is you were, you'll never be able to carry it? That weight will crush you. And maybe it hasn't crushed you all the way to your knees today. But all you have to do is go to certain uh, television stations or read certain parts of the newspaper or read certain ads to read how, how the, 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 the restlessness and the burden of trying to prove and to be somebody and, and to count and to be significant and to be you know, something of, 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 of substance in this world is killing people all around us needlessly. When everything that you need to be and everything that you can be is found in being yoked with Christ. 
You know, in another place, Paul is going to talk about how we're enslaved to sin. You know, we, we, we think that we control everything and we really, we really don't when it comes to, to the fallenness and the nature. I mean, try as we will. There are times when we grit it and we grit it and we grit it and we, we, you know, we, we muscle up and we ratchet up our courage and we go for a while and then, and then we fall prey. And it might be a lot of things. It might be, you know, not getting angry at people we really love. It might be something like uh, you know, an addiction to alcohol or to, to some kind of other substance or to pornography or to work. It might be that, that we're, we're enslaved to any number of things in this world. I mean, it seems like every time you open the paper, you discover another thing for us as human beings to become enslaved to, to get yoked to, and to find ourselves like Sisyphus pushing that, that rock up the hill only to get it to the top and it roll back down to the bottom. How many of you have ever achieved something that you worked really hard only to find that the next day it wasn't enough? Jesus is the only king who will never rob you. He's the only master who will never enslave you. He is the only God who chose to become like you so that you could be with him and yoked to Him forever and ever and ever. So here's the thing. Stop worrying and get yoked to Christ. Be ready to confess that, yes, He is Lord. He is Master. You know, repent, which is that biblical theological word which means not only coming to your senses, but really changing the direction of your life. Don't run away from Him. Don't kick against those goads. You know, go in the direction of God. Go in the direction of the Christ who says, come to me, who invites you to come to me. All, not all who are beautiful and all who are smart and all who are wise and who are, are brilliant and who are wealthy and, 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 and have the acclaim of the world, but everyone, all who are weary and heavy laden. And in that yoke you'll find rest for your soul. It doesn't mean life is going to be easy. Sometimes the most... Awful things can happen to you still in life as a believer. The, the cancers and the illnesses. But being yoked to Him makes the difference in who you're going through that storm with. And you're baptized to wash all of those sins away where they're never remembered by God ever again. Because when He looks at you, you've clothed yourself with Christ. And when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus on you. And if you come to Jesus today, or at some point in your life, then at that last day, what you're going to hear is God say, Come unto me for all of eternity. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. If there's a way that we can minister to you, we want to do that. This is, this is serious business. We want, to do, we want to take care of it this morning. We want to do it this morning. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to these shepherds. And you can do it during the singing of this next song. Come and do it now as we stand and sing together. Cool.